0: Well, in one way, there's nothing more to be said. That was great. I just want to start off by saying I want to give Kristen and the worship band a big round of applause. Let's do that. It's just tremendous. It's just tremendous, and it adds so much to worship, and it's just so great. I would like to do that another 30 or 40 minutes and skip my talk. i would be fine with that. So great. There was one more. So Josh is going wild on the duties. He was supposed to help me up from the floor, but it's that good. It really is that good. Um, So glad to be with you all today. And glad to be, um, it's so good to be with people that love the Lord because there's a tremendous encouragement that comes just from walking in the midst of them. Uh, How pleasant it is to walk up to somebody and uh, that they're glad to see you. Doesn't happen often, but every once in a while someone's glad to see you, you know what I mean? But it's such a great thing when someone's glad to see you, it lifts you up. The scripture says that the encouraging word lifts the heart. And just one encouraging word, I mean, even if you were to say something like, I like your tie, I don't know, that doesn't mean much, but that lifts your heart. You know. I look at Bob, Bob is a dapper dresser, he has a really good overcoat on, I wish I had an overcoat like that, but you know... Just one encouraging word. I appreciate you being here. Thanks for what you did last week. It's just an an amazing thing. Today, though, I'm going to talk on Jesus exalted in New Testament books. And I guarantee you, you have never had a sermon titled by that before. Jesus exalted in New Testament books. And I'm going to start after Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Uh, Absolutely clear that Jesus is the central story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He's all over it. A to Z, it's all about Jesus in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. But I want to pick up with the church, because you know, we're the church. And the church that was birthed after Jesus came back from the dead, they went through things that are exactly the things that we're going through. And that when we read what happened to them, we are reading about the same things that happened to us. And we have different things that happen. I mean, they didn't have iPhones, but they had distractions. Okay, everything that we're going through, they've gone through in some way. And when the writers of the New Testament books were writing to the church, they were writing to the church about these are the important things. And don't get distracted or pulled to the side by something that's trying to replace Jesus. So I'm going to say that again. Don't get distracted or pulled to the side by something that is trying to replace Jesus. It's always interesting to me to walk to any gathering, walk in any gathering, especially a church gathering, and how long do you hear talk until someone says the name of Jesus? It's distressing sometimes that you can go a half an hour, even 45 minutes, and Jesus' name is not mentioned. I was in one meeting not too long ago. They had a bunch of church people here and they talked about the vitality of the church 26 times without mentioning the name of Jesus. There is no vitality in the church without Jesus. But they were off on a side road. Sometimes we call them rabbit holes. Sometimes we call them other things. But I want you to imagine the position that Satan was in. I know you don't think much like this, but think about this for a moment. First of all, Satan was convinced he was going to take Jesus down. Satan is still so deceived, he thinks he's going to overcome God. He still thinks that way. If you talk to people in satanic churches, I hope you don't talk to too many, but if you do, they will tell you flat, in the end, we win. We have the power. And in satanic churches, the big move is just, who has the power? Who has the power? That's when you're praying against demons The demons will, when they speak, they will awfully say, no, I'm not leaving, I own him. I have him, or I have her. To a demon, it's all about power. And this was in Acts very clearly, Sonnet. When the seven sons of Sceva came up to cast out a demon, the demon said, Jesus we know, Paul we know of, who are you? And the demons perceived they had more power than the seven sons of Sceva, and they jumped out of who they were in, and the seven sons of Sceva, they went into them, and they ripped their clothes and ran out. It's not in the top 20 sermons that you hear in church, but it's extremely important. Because the whole thing about Satan is he believes he has the power. He's convinced demons they have the power, and they will win in the end. And Satan very much thought he was going to defeat Jesus on the cross, and it was incredibly difficult for him to see the resurrection. Now, he has got to be panicked, okay? He has got to be panicked when he sees the resurrection. But worse than that, he's seeing the emerging church, which could lead to the salvation of the whole world. He has got to come up with plans. He has to come up with plans. Now, it's very important to understand Satan was not from the beginning. The Bible says, in the beginning, God. It doesn't say, in the beginning, God and the angels. It says, in the beginning, God. Satan did not know all things from outside of time. He's learning things as he goes. And he listens to God, and he tells God, God, you said this and this, that, and the other. He tries to maneuver things. But he is trying to tear apart the church in its beginning, He is trying to tear apart the church ever since then, and he is trying to tear apart the church right now. And so the way that he tears apart the church, the primary maneuver and tactic that he does is to take every individual person and to get Jesus not to be exalted in their life, but if Jesus is in their life, he is in a sidelined place, not exalted to the first place. And this is why Jesus, when he preached, said, you must seek first the kingdom of God. Not seek the kingdom of God, but seek first the kingdom of God. Jesus cannot be sought after as an alternative or as one of a multiple of choices. He is singly the fullness of the Godhead who dwelt in bodily form, and he is singly above all rule and authority, in heaven and earth and under the earth, singly, uniquely, the only begotten of the Father. Now, if Satan can come through and unexalt Jesus from that position, then he's taking him down from being fully equal with God and has taken away his divinity and pushed him over to the side, and now Jesus can be consulted, Jesus can be listened to, but he's only one of many voices. And so this is what's done in Islam. You know, Islam says, oh yeah, Jesus, absolutely. He walked the earth. He talked. Even what they said in the New Testament, yeah, that's what happened. He was a great prophet. Yes, Jesus was a great prophet. Not as great as Mohammed, but still he was a great prophet. And you say, well, do you believe he was the son of God? Absolutely not. He is not divine. He is a great prophet. The distinguishing point between Christianity and every other religion is that Jesus is uniquely the Son of God equal with God. Separates Christianity from every other religion. And many other religions acknowledge that Jesus walked the earth. So Satan would try to get us to the place that Jesus is a factor, but not the exalted one. Not the unique exalted one, but a factor. Once he gets us to that level, he tries to go, let's make him a smaller and smaller and smaller factor. So you need to deal with Jesus at weddings and funerals. Let's try to minimize it down to that. They'll talk about Jesus at weddings and funerals, and that's all he is in your life. That's where he's headed. That's where Satan's headed, to minimize Jesus. God is always exalting Jesus. Satan is always minimizing Jesus. And he would like to take him all the way out. So this is reflected in all the books of the New Testament. Now, I'm not going to get through all the books of the New Testament, but I'm going to talk about several of them. And when we get into Acts, Acts was breaking out the biggest thing. Remember, the first believers were Jews, and the biggest, most difficult thing for them was to say, we're going to go to the Gentiles. I'm looking around, I think we're all Gentiles in here. There may be a Messianic Jew scattered in, but I don't see you. So the idea of coming to the Gentiles was absolutely ridiculous to the Jews because they were the chosen people. The Gentiles were defined as the unchosen people. So they were even unclean. You couldn't even eat with them. That's pretty strong. They were unclean. So what the Scripture says is that the Jew- Jesus said, tarry in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. And these words were very important. They said, and then you shall be my witnesses, not to Jews here, Jews there, and Jews everywhere. That's not what it says. He says, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and to the ends of the earth that all would hear. And there's several great verses in the Old Testament that says of Jesus, and he will be a light to the Gentiles, it says of the Messiah. So in the New Testament, when when Acts is getting going, the huge big things happen. First, the infilling of the Holy Spirit was gigantic. And Jesus said, don't go till you get that that the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Jesus, would come inside of them and so transform them that they would have power. And they spoke the word, and they spoke the word when people wanted to stone them, and they spoke the word. Uh, you You know, when Paul shares about things and he's talking about his life, he talks about how many times he was beaten with 39 lashes, five times. And he was stoned. This is very bothersome. Multiple times he was stoned. So, Deborah, if I got stoned one time, I mean, I just one good stoning, where they took me to a pit, hit me with a hundred stones. I'm telling you, you would hear about it every day of my life from then on. If I just got stoned one time. Paul was beaten five times with 39 lashes. He was stoned multiple times. He had all these things happen. And he follows that verse over by saying, But I consider none of this to be compared. None of the sufferings of this present age are to be compared to the glory that to be is to be revealed. I got smashed. Yes, yeah, so what? It's a little thing. It's a little thing. It would have been a big thing to me. It was a little thing to Paul because he was so close to Jesus. I really like it when he said he's reached the place that he was so close to Jesus that he could stay or leave. He said, for me to live is Christ, for me is to die is gain, and I am caught betwixt the two. Whether to stay here with you, which is better for you, or to go on and be with Christ, which would be wonderful for me. But for your sake, I'm going to stay. He had an option. Now, uh, Josh, I don't want to cast dispersions or anything, but if Jesus gives me that option this week, I will not be here next Sunday. Okay? (laughs) I mean, I'm going to make sure Helen's got plenty of money somehow, but I'm afraid it's not going to work out that way if I'm given that option. Paul had that option. And he stayed. Now, I probably would feel so guilty that I knew Helen would smash me if I leave, so I'd probably stay. But but what a tremendous closeness with the Lord. Nothing like what we talk about in a regular Christian life. And so when Peter was preaching to all these people, he said, I want to make sure there's one clear thing you understand. And this was Acts 4.12. And if you don't know this is a memory verse, it should be in your top 30. It's a great verse, Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name given among men by which we must be saved. Now why was this important? Because when they were going out in Acts, they were hitting all the pagan cultures. Well, we had no shortage of gods We had gods everywhere. The Jews had all these gods. The Romans had gods. Everybody had gods. The Egyptians had gods. You couldn't walk in there and go, all of y'all have been living straight materialism, and what you need to do is recognize there's a spiritual dimension. No, they were all in the spiritual dimensions. They prayed to all sorts of gods. And one time, Paul came into a, I forget which city in Greece, and he looked down and he saw all the statues, and the last statue said, to the unknown god, because they'd made a statue in case they left a god out. They didn't want him to get upset. And so Paul started off his sermon and said, I came here to preach to you about the unknown God. And oh, by the way, the unknown God is the only true God, and all these others are fakes. But he opened the discussion by saying, I'm telling you about your unknown God, because you know there might be another one. Well, there is another one, and it's the only one. So Jesus, it had to be said of Jesus that he was the singular way to be rescued. He was not one of multiple ways. So when we look at our culture today, what does our culture say? If you come up to someone and say, well, I've got peace with God, it's a great thing, I'd like to share it with you, they go, well, I'm happy for you that you have found your way. Implying that there are 80 billion ways and I'll find my way, I'm glad for you that you found your way. But the scripture doesn't say that you find a way, he says that Jesus is the way. And Jesus said it straightforwardly, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in Acts 4.12, it's very important that he says, I want you to catch hold of this. Lots of things are going to be happening circumstantially. Lots of things are going to be happening, but you've got to anchor yourself in this one thing. We are bringing salvation to the world. This salvation is in Jesus and in no one else. And you go, I got that down, Jim. We got that in second grade. Yes, but I want you to see how the books say it. The books say it every time. When we get to, to 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians, Romans has got so many in it, I'm holding off Romans for a little while, but in First and Second Corinthians, these were churches that got started where you didn't have some long-term background of religious faith and everything settled. Lots of Corinthians were completely pagan. I mean, they were completely out to lunch with another god, and that was it. And fertility gods and the whole thing, that's where they were. And when God came in, he did amazing things for them. But Paul wrote to Corinthians two times, and it is very instructive how he talked about the church, and after the church started so well, what would be the things the enemy would do to come in and help the church decline, to make the church decline. And if you read through First and Second Corinthians, you'll find there are two themes throughout the whole thing. One is, I'm going to tell you about Jesus and how he's the answer to everything. And the other is, I want to tell you how bad your substitute is for Jesus and how it leads to death. I'm talking about Jesus and how important he is and how you've been deceived by these other things. And that's every chapter of Corinthians, except maybe the last chapter when it says, give my greetings to Eodius and everybody like this. The greetings verses don't count. But other than that, when they're talking about things, they're talking about, exalting Jesus, and what has kept Jesus from being exalted. So in 2 Corinthians eleven three, there's a tremendous verse that says, But I am fearful, lest that even as the serpent beguiled Eve by his cunning, so your minds might be corrupted from simple and pure devotion to Christ. He says, I am fearful that as the serpent beguiled Eve by his cunning, which he did, that your minds might be corrupted from what? Simple and pure devotion to Jesus. Simple and pure devotion to Jesus. It bothered Nicodemus when Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It bothered him when he said, you must come as a little child or you can't come. It bothers lots of adults to hear the words, you can't come unless you come as a little child. In the first pass, Bob, that sounds demeaning. If you know the Lord, you find out that every single thing that the Lord does is the opposite of demeaning, but uplifting. It's uplifting. Everything Jesus does is building and uplifting. And it says of, Jesus, it says of Satan that he came to kill, steal, and destroy. Everything about, Jesus is, everything about Satan is destructive. Everything about Jesus is about love and building. Satan is steal, kill, and destroy. Jesus is love and building. It's very simple. But yet we believe lies when we come to Jesus that he's demeaning. He doesn't recognize I have a college education. I don't have to go back and be a little kid. I'm intelligent. I can think. Put the proposition in front of me. I can handle it. Jesus said, unless you come as a little child, you cannot enter in. But when a little child comes, they do not demand the details on the mechanism. They move from their heart. Okay, I... If, if my mother told me, we've got money for you to go to college, don't you worry about it, and I'm a little child, I do not worry about the mechanism. I just say my mom said she'd take care of it, and so that's where we are, and I don't go back. Well, what would you do if you had a four-year-old that came into you, and, and let's just say, <clears throat> I don't, I'm going to use a, 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 a Susie and Jane Smith not to jump on anybody, but Susie and Jane Smith were talking one night about how to make their budget work out and seemed to be stretching a little bit to make the budget. And their four-year-old overheard the conversation and went back to, their, to her room and said, oh gosh, I'm a tremendous burden on mom and dad. And she was worried about it and upset. And the next morning she came down to her parents and said, I heard you talking last night and I realized that I'm a tough load. And, um, I know, I know that, um, Katie, you can see Abby doing this, and so coming down and saying, I know I'm a tough load on you, and so I've decided that I'm not going to eat every other day in order to lighten my burden on the budget. What would you do if you had a three- or four-year-old that said that to you? You would pick them up in your arms and say, I have all things prepared for you to eat. I do not want you to think twice about not eating every other day to make it easy on me. And you would want to make sure that that child was confirmed and affirmed to relax because this is something that's taken care of for you. And for you to be worried and anxious about that is terrible. That is our Heavenly Father. And we come to Him with our solutions on life and our solutions on things, and He treats us just like that mother treats that three or four-year-old. He said, don't you know, if you'll seek first my kingdom, all these other things will be provided. I'm I'm always amused by the fact that um, when people come up and they say, well, there can't be a God, because if there was a God, God would never have let there be evil in the world. So since there's evil in the world, there can't be God. Well, the first thing is, there's evil in the first creation, but we're in line for two creations. God did not do one creation. The Bible says he does two creations. And that the first creation is the creation we're in right now. And there's a reason that evil is in the world. I'll mention that in a moment. But in the second creation, there is no evil. There is no evil in the second creation. And you say, well, but the first creation's taken a long time. Our interaction with the first creation is no more than 100 years. I mean, or so. 80, 90, 100 years. Just depending on who you're looking at in the congregation. Okay. <laughs> We have a very limited time that we interact with this creation. Then how long are we in the second creation? Forever. Forever. We'll look back at this and go, that was just a whiff. It was a whiff. Just a whiff. Nothing. After we've been there six million years, Margie's going to turn to me and go, weren't we on earth at one time? There's not going to be that. And you know what the Bible says? There won't even be memories of pain. No memories of pain. You can't go back and say it hurt then. You can't remember hurt. There'll be no tears, no evil. And after we're there six, eight, ten billion years, we're going to go, why were we so upset with the whiff and being concerned whether that worked out right? God allows us a period of time to choose Him. There has to be evil because when you choose to go against God, that is evil. That's the definition of evil. When Satan chose not to call God God, but to call himself God, he was evil. That is the father of evil. So there has to be evil because there's a choice to choose God or not choose God. Now, God could have made robots. We have, Honey, what's that vacuum cleaner thing we have? Not a Roomba, but a Neato. We have a Neato kind of auto-vacuum thing and it runs around the floor, does really good things, follows exactly how it's programmed to do. It is a robot. Now, what if Helen and I went home and the Neato stopped in the middle of the den and said, which it can't speak, but it said, I've decided to renegotiate my contract. I think that after 30 hours of cleaning per week, I should get double pay. And I'm not going to move from this spot in the middle of the den until I get what I demand. Well, a robot can't do that. A robot can't do that because they're programmed and all they can do is what they're programmed. God did not make robots. He made people in His image, which means they can create, which means they can choose, which means they have the ability to discern right from wrong. And He made us that way so we could choose Him, have fellowship with Him, wonderfully benefit from that for eternity, but it is our choice. And when Jesus would preach he would say, this is what happened to you on the day of your visitation. And when he said, woe unto you, Korazan, he said, because on the day of your visitation, you rejected the Lord. He said, on the day of judgment, it will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for you. Now, if you want to be underneath something on the day of judgment, you do not want to be worse off than Sodom and Gomorrah. But Jesus said that the inhabitants of Chorazin, when Jesus visited there, spoke to them, showed them the miracles of God, and they rejected him, that that was their day of visitation. And the Lord does visit. He does give a chance to every person. He will judge fairly. But Jesus focused on this. Don't reject when the Lord comes. Everybody here has heard the Lord, heard of the Lord. We all have no excuse. Not one person in this room can go to heaven and go, it wasn't clear to me. No sirree. I thought that Jesus was just like Superman and Batman. That's what I thought. No, we cannot say that. We have heard the gospel clearly. So it makes a difference that we have a choice to make. But this time is just a whiff. It's just a whiff. Deborah's at Emory. When I was at Emory going through school, sometimes I'd be in the middle of courses going, this will never end. Deborah, I want to tell you, absolutely, it does end. It does end. It comes to the end. There will be a day you take your last final exam and there will be great feelings inside of your body, things you can't quite explain now, but it's a wonderful feeling because those things come to an end. If you have a little kid and they are screaming, it seems like screaming will never stop. Do you know that feeling? I know that feeling. It seems like it will never stop. And if you have a little kid and they get a shot and they come out and look at you and say, Mama, you knew he was going to stab me and you took me in there. And after they're stabbed, they scream and you pick them up. But you know it is going to stop. You know you're going to comfort them and you know they'll be better for the shot. But they didn't like the shot. When we get disciplined by the Lord, the Bible says that no discipline in its time is pleasant. That means discipline feels like a shot. It's not pleasant for the time, but it yields the peaceable fruits of righteousness. And what God does for us is always for our certain good. And yet we come back to Him and say, why did you let anything like that happen to me? And many times in my life when I've looked back, i found out that God tried a gentle way, then He nudged a little more, and then He brought in a hammer. Have you got me? So one of the things I want to tell to you that I've learned in life is when God is nudging you, respond then. Don't wait for the hammer. Okay, because he will be faithful, and we can't tell him with one thing, Lord, please let thy will be done in my life, and then turn with the other hand and go, but I don't want that part. If you pray, Lord, thy will come in my life, he believes that you mean, thy will come in my life, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. If we pray that, he takes us at our word, and he brings his will to our life. Okay, so God knows what he's doing in these things, but there is a visitation. There's a time that God comes. And so he says, there is going to be something in you that fights back from simple and pure devotion to Christ. And I'm telling you, don't be deceived by anything that pushes you away from that. If it's saying you can't have simple, pure devotion to Christ, you can't have childlike trust of Christ, you can't have a simple, heartfelt relationship with Jesus that does not depend on knowledge, skills, and abilities, if anything is saying that to you, it's not of God. And this is particularly rough in our culture because we make certificates and degrees. So we say, well, Leah, you're a qualified nursery something because you've got this certificate, which I don't have, but you're qualified and I'm not qualified. I don't know what the name of it is, but I do know you have it. Okay, and we say to somebody else, okay, well, you're a licensed certified industrial hygienist, so you can go in and do X, Y, Z, or you're a certified something or other. And if you've got your certificate, then you're there. God does not work with certificates. He comes and takes Balaam's donkey and uses him. Okay? Balaam's donkey had no certificates. Are you clear? No college education. Nothing. When God came to, when they when came to Jesse's family, it was very interesting that Jesse was the youngest. I mean, David, excuse me, David was the youngest in Jesse's family. And they went through all the elder ones who were, more qualified, until they got down to David. And then he said to the prophet, he said, this boy is after God's heart, and that's the reason I've chosen him. You know, David had red hair. Kind of messes up your pictures a little bit. He's like Charles Trawick. You know, he had red hair. Red hair. How can you have a tremendous king of Israel with red hair? Well, maybe some of y'all can see that quite easily. It's just not the way I picture David. It's not in the Bible pictures that way either, by the way. But he had red hair, the Bible says. He had red hair, but his heart was for the Lord. And the Bible says in Samuel that man judges from the outside, which includes certificates, but God judges from the heart. Man judges from the outside, but God judges from the heart. God looks at people by the heart. It doesn't matter your knowledge, skills, and ability. He is interested in your heart. He can add knowledge, skills, and ability ad infinitum. That's not a big deal. But your heart has to be given to him. Um, so if I'd come up to Helen when we were engaged, or we weren't engaged, but my proposal for engagement had been like this. Well, I've looked over the finances. It turns out there are tax advantages to be married. And in addition to that, there's a, a lot to be said for shared responsibilities in getting the work done in the house. Helen would really laugh at this. And then, and then, and then I said, and, and further, there's this thing about having two people in two cars. That's awful handy. If one car goes down, somebody can come and help you. I think these are really good things. After giving this a lot of thought, I've decided that marriage is something very important to enter into, and uh, so I want to do it with you we're going nowhere. We're going nowhere. And we are absolutely clear on that rendition because we see, but your heart, you haven't given your heart to her. You don't love her. You've just figured out competitive advantages in life's operations. That's nothing. That has nothing to do with it. Do you love the woman? And that's what's the important thing. And when you love somebody, you do things. I mean, Helen and I lived in an apartment for a long time and We had the dryer in the dining room. And we won't even talk about other things that we had. But we made do. We didn't have a dishwasher. We made do. But when you love somebody, you walk through all sorts of things. When you're on a contractual relationship with somebody, you're picky. You didn't hold up your end of the contract. I thought we had a discussion on that. You were going to make the money, I was going to spend it. Isn't that our agreement? And, And brains to spend it well, and I do spend it well. Furthermore, I'll shop better than you do and get better deals. I think this is a good arrangement. That's not the way a marriage works. That's not the way things work with God. But God is after our heart. You can easily say to the Lord, I have no idea what you're doing, why, or, you know, when Miguel Escobar recently passed on. That was not my plan. I had to have a long conversation with God about that. I had other directions. We had things to do, people to see, places to go. And none of that was going to happen. And God will do that all the time. And He'll go, I understand. You had plans. I had plans. It says in Ephesians 2.10 that every single one of us is saved so that we can walk in the steps that God ordained for us from the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world, this is awesome to think about, Eleanor, before the foundation of the world, God saw Eleanor. He didn't call you E, but He saw Eleanor... (laughs) Before the foundation of the world, before time was made, before space was made, God saw Eleanor and said, I want Eleanor to be. And then He made you in your mother's womb. And He's orchestrated your whole life because He loves you and He has things that Eleanor can do that no one else can do. It is not that if Eleanor punts, Alanette is the backup. And so if Eleanor misses her walk with the Lord, Alanette is going to have to take on two walks with the Lord because she has to cover her walk and Eleanor's walk. No, there's a walk for Eleanor that's just for Eleanor. That's a great thing to think about. And he did this before the foundation of the world. I mean, it blows your mind. And that's why we have to come to the Lord with our heart because our knowledge is nothing like we think it is. We reckon ourselves smart because we talk to other people. And we say, well, you're doing all right, but I actually know more than you on that. And uh, Philip looks at me and says, you can't take a picture, much less a video. And I go, you're right. And he goes, yeah, I'm smarter than you, see? And so we do these things because we compare with each other. And when we compare with each other, we go, hey, I'm pretty good, I'm pretty good. But, you know, in John 5, Jesus really jumped on the Pharisees and he said, how can you believe? when you receive glory one from another, but do not seek the glory that comes from the one and only Father. He said, how can you believe? Meaning, you can't believe if your life is going to be based on receiving glory from other people and not seeking the glory that comes from God. You must seek what comes from God. And we have to let God be God. You know, the children of Israel... I'm not long with this sermon, hold on. The children of Israel when they got mad at Moses, they were used to looking at Moses. Moses blew them away one time, Hope, because, you know, he went and talked with God, and he came back, and the reflection of the glory of God on his face was so bright that they could not look at his face. Not that they don't choose to look at his face. The reflection was so bright. So you go home and say, what wattage light bulb is that? Most of us in here could look at a 25-watt bulb okay. A 100-watt bulb is tough. You know, when you're changing a lamp and you put in a 100-watt, that's tough. Moses' face radiated so much, they couldn't look at it. That's a 100-watt-plus bulb. He was, woof, So he had to wear a veil. Now, if I was there, I, I probably would have made the mistake, too. I can't say if I was there. But you should get a hint from the fact that if the reflected glory of God is that much... Looking straight into the glory of God might be a bit overwhelming. Are you with me? I hope you're with me. Okay, but that's not what they said to Moses. They said to Moses, we are tired of listening to you as an intermediate. You go back and tell God. Oh, lots of sentences do not start off well with that. You go back and tell God, if he wants to talk to us, he has to talk to us straight, straight, whatever that thing is, one-on-one, straight. He, he can come and talk, he can do it. No more of this intermediate stuff. Yeah, that glory, that was a good trick, but no more of this intermediate stuff, okay? So Moses went back and told God, and God said, okay, bring him to the foot of the mountain. And so they brought him to the foot of the mountain, and the Bible says that the Spirit of God came as a thunderstorm and, in, and clouds, and he spoke. And he spoke directly to the people which completely frightened the people, just hearing the voice of God, and their next instructions to Moses were very clear, which was, whatever you do, never let God speak to us again. Do you see? That is us with God. We pull God down into, look God, you've got to work with me here, I'm, reason- I'm willing to make a reasonable compromise. That is not God. God isn't reasonable compromise. God is, I want to take you out of death into life i want to take you from deception into truth and i'm the only one that can do that and i'm the only one that can take you there that's god not god not coming to god and saying a little deception can be a good thing it keeps your mind sharp no wrong deception always kills sin always puts you in bondage and deception always leads to death that's what god says so in the scripture he's saying. Don't ever get pushed off from simple and pure devotion to Christ. So I had 13 verses. We made it through two. That's pretty good. Okay? But these things are extremely important. In every book of the Bible, there's a verse like this. Don't miss the fact that Jesus is the answer and the number one. Helen? yo, we had a visitor last Saturday. This was very interesting. He's a fellow named Joe Nash, and he lives not terribly far from here with about two miles or so. And he came to equipping the saints, and he came up and talked, and he, he was visiting every church within five miles of his house to see, listening to the sermon, how many people, how many pastors recognized the divinity of Jesus. He's going to every church within five miles just to listen to hear if the pastor recognized the divinity of Jesus. And we weren't doing very well, he said, in terms of hearing it. Isn't that amazing? But it's the very thing that we're talking about. The enemy comes to pull Jesus down rather than to exalt him. So we're ready if y'all want to come on back forward. So the message in the gospel is repeated in every single book. It's centered on Jesus and it gives great instructions about things that pull us away. In Galatians, the law pulled them away. The flesh pulls people away. The temptations pull people away. All these things are laid out in detail, but always right next to Jesus' rescues. So that's why Jesus said, he who commits sin is the slave of sin. But I came that you might have life and have it more abundantly. So he never gives us a problem without lifting us up. Whenever Jesus enters a situation, he never leaves you disconsolate. He always bends down and picks you up. But he never comes up to you and says, Eleanor, you're bad, bad, bad. He goes, Elner, this is bad. Let me fix it. Jesus always comes and fixes, just like he did with the woman in adultery. Go and sin no more. Neither do I condemn you. He finds the sin and fixes you. Satan finds the sin and condemns you because the Bible says he is the accuser of the brethren and he does it all the time. That's what he does. Let's bow our heads. Jesus, we thank you that you alone are to be exalted to the highest place. We ask that you work within our lives, that we exalt you to the highest place. Many things have happened to us. We tend to look backwards often more than forwards. We tend to regret more than to rejoice in the plan you have. We look back and say, "Where I made mistakes. How often do we say, if I just would have something... And yet, Lord, you are the hope of today and tomorrow and forever. Let our eyes see you and rejoice in you and be glad that you are with us and rejoice, Father, that you have a plan for us that is eternally glorious in your Son, Jesus Christ. I ask now you move by your Spirit within our hearts. Change what needs to be changed. Break down what needs to be broken down. Rip apart that which has been covering and has been a deception. Now, as we have this time of prayer, we give you glory. We give you honor and we give you majesty. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And the altars are open for prayer.